Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. Really looking forward to interviewing today's guest. A man that's been involved in quite a large drug dealing network and he was eventually arrested and sent to prison and he's now a reformed character who's doing his bit to transform communities. So I think it's really important that we look at guests like this to come onto the podcast and share their experiences with with me and the audience so that we can really dig deep into how it all works and work with each other to change communities for the better in the 21st century. Take a listen to a snippet of this week's episode on the Community Safety Podcast. And uh, my phone went about six o'clock and I remember looking at it and it was my neighbour. And uh, as I picked it up, I had all oh, police sirens in the back. And he went, Paul, he said, I think I think the police are at your house. I said, oh, how do you know it's my house? He said, because your door's 12 foot from where it should be. And I went, okay. And, and, I, and I remember just putting the phone on the floor and jumping all over it. It's now time for the Community Safety Podcast. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon. I've been working in community safety for the last 25 years, and this podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. Delighted to introduce today's guest as Paul Wormsley. Between 2006 and 2011, Paul was Britain's most wanted criminal, spending five years on the run from the police on European shores. Facing a lengthy spell in prison, he handed himself into the police in 2011 and was sentenced to 10 years for drugs conspiracy. Whilst in custody, he was awarded numerous awards for creative writing and published his first book, just an ordinary decent criminal, which has been an Amazon bestseller. Paul is now a qualified life coach, humanistic counsellor, and NLP practitioner. He now works on intervention projects in the Merseyside area to help and guide young people. Paul, absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the Community Safety Podcast. Uh, my pleasure, Jim. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Um, interesting story. Can't wait to sort of ask you a few questions about it. Clearly, you grew up in Norwich Green. Um, I think we're sort of a, quite a similar age. I'm sort of uh, early 50s. I think you are the same. Yeah. So what was what was it like sort of growing up in a sort of 1980s, 1990s Norwich Green? What was it like? So uh, there wasn't much about, and someone said to me the other day, we had nothing then, but we had everything. Uh, we were out on the streets all the time. I was always playing football. Uh, there was a lot of crime in the area. It was always about, there was always someone going to jail or someone's house was being raided or there'd be stolen cars on the estate. 
you know, that's the type of place it was. It was just a lot going on. It was predominantly, I'd say, our part of Nonoscreen was Catholic. So all the families were huge. You know, I'm the youngest of nine. I've got six sisters. I was brought up on Martini and Lemonade and Top of the Pops. A crazy, crazy time. I mean, I can remember Birmingham in the in the eighties and nineties, and it's exactly what you said. You know, it was a very simplistic life back there, back then. But there was lots going on, and it was it was an interesting time. Um, I mean, it must have been quite a, a, a chaotic kind of environment in living in your in your address. Really, you know, you just said there you had sort of you were the youngest of nine. Um, six sisters, a couple of brothers. What was it like, you know, living in a presumably not a palatial kind of uh, property back then in the sort of, you know, the 70s and 80s? What was it like growing up in that kind of environment? So it was a, it was a three-bedroomed house, and obviously my mum and dad had one room. So the nine kids had two rooms. The boys had one, so it was three of us, and the girls had it was six of them in that room. Sure. There, was, there, there was always fights going on in the house. Uh, my dad's ruled the hands with an iron fist, if I'm honest. Uh, I think by the time I come along, my dad had punched himself out. He'd, he'd, he'd like, you know, he'd, that's just how it was. And that's how he had to try and control nine kids, especially having six daughters and the lads knocking at the house all the time. So obviously him trying to look after us as well, maybe that's where it all started because he was a docker at the time. So, you know, after docks, you should just end up on our house. And from that, you just think that's normality. So it was hectic, but all my sisters worked, all my brothers worked. And they always went out to work. So would I be would it be right in saying that the relationship with your dad wasn't the best when you were growing up? I don't think I had any relationship with my dad. I mean, I can remember going into my dad when I was twelve years at twelve years of age, because I was a decent football player and the best team in the area wanted me to sign. And he placed he, 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 am I allowed to swear on this? <laughs> uh, I, I prefer not. <laughs> well, he called me a glory hunting bee for coming right. in and wanting to sign for the best team, and you know, and I was like, "What? Don't you want to see me getting on?" And it was, "No, you're playing for this team, and that's that, and that's the end of it." And it was like, "Wow, this is nuts!" And then, if I ever asked again, I mean, my tear ends up on the wall. What was his allegiance to that team then? Well, it was his. It was his mates who run the team, and I was. I'd arguably say the best player in the team. But there was one of the kids who I just didn't get on with who, who played in the same team. So we had to play a half each. But he always played the first half just so I could come and try and redeem it for the second half because he was absolutely pony. So um, obviously really sort of disappointing sort of time for you at that point, really. I mean, I, I was involved in in sort of sport at a decent level when I was a kid. And I can imagine if my dad had said that to me, you know, I'd have been absolutely devastated. Um, so was that your desire, really, when you were sort of growing up? Was it Was it sort of, I know you're a Liverpool fan, was it really just to sort of make the grade and, and play for play for the, the Reds? Yeah, but that's it. Or play for anybody. It was just play football. That's all I do. I boxed as well. I boxed from the age of 11. In fact, it, it was the age of 10 till the age of 15 as well uh, for Liverpool star ABC. And I was ball boy for the pool reserve. So... You know, it, it, I just thought I was going to be a footballer and then things started to change a little bit in school for me where I started to read a little bit more. But that was only because I wanted to get out that house early in the morning. So I'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning and the history teacher, who was my form teacher, 
had always let me come and sit in the classroom with him. I mean, that wouldn't be allowed today. All safeguard. So he'd be sitting there having his Benson and Edge's Siggy doing the crosswords and I'd be helping him do the crossword. And I learned more in that doing them crosswords than I did in most education. I can imagine. Um, so when you were growing up poor, you obviously talk about sort of the type of estate that you were growing up on and sort of criminality was, was a, a kind of the norm really. Um, how old would you say you were when you actually started to get involved in crime? I would say, well, if you class this as crime, being woken up by your brother because your dad has just phoned up from the docks to say that the John West Salmon boat had just landed on the Canadian dock and the rail track run at the side of our estate, the commercial rail track, that took the stock and the goods from the docks to Warrington, which is the hub to get it to wherever it was going. And we used to set a fire at the side of the track and basically go on. And when the train slowed down, we'd jump on and we'd take all the tins of salmon off. So that was 10 years of age. And that and that presumably was being orchestrated by the adults? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. In, in the end, it would be me who'd be like, I, I was like the, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was like the cat of Hong Kong Fooey. <laughs> you know, it's always the cat who saves the day at the end of the, at, at the, end the, of the day, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're showing our age now. Hong Kong through that brings back some good memories. I mean, you even sort of mentioned. I know when you were you were sort of young as well. When you sort of go away with Liverpool, you were sort of tasked with uh, pickpocketing for tickets for the game, wouldn't you? You'd be sort of like sent out, and you'd be doing stuff like that. And you was you were quite young then. I wasn't sent out to do that. That what what had happened, Jim, was that I was told on two days before the match that they were letting me go to the European Cup final in Paris, and all I was interested in was getting in this match. And I did loads of stories when we got there that people never had tickets. So I said to my brother while we were there, "Have we got tickets?" And he went, "No, we're bunking in." I went, "What? What do you mean we're bunking in? No, no I'm getting the ticket." So my other brother was there with his, with his mates and his mates. That's what they'd done. And I said, listen, I want tickets. They went, well, okay, we'll we'll show you what to do. So I had a crash course and pickpocketing at the age of 11. In fact, I was still 10 because uh, it, it was May 81. Uh, in fact, I wasn't. I was 11. So I had a crash course and... I ended up, I think, with about 17 tickets in the end. And, but that's, I just wanted to get in that match. That was all that was on my mind. And you know what kids are like? They're relentless. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the ironic time around that time was when you get sort of crowds turning up to a game like that, nine times out of ten, because of the amount of Liverpool fans that turn up, you'd just walk in anyway, wouldn't you? Well, it was crazy. I think there was about 40,000 Liverpool fans there on that day, 60,000 in, in the stadium, but 40,000 of them were Liverpool fans. I mean, Paris is just, it's like, it's just a day out, isn't it? In in terms of getting there, it's a full day. Everyone used to just get mortally drunk on the way. And, uh, well, not everybody, but most people, you know. Uh, yeah, it was just one of them trips that I'll, I'll, I'll never forget till the, end of, uh, till the end of my days. Yeah, of course. I think... Um... 1989 Hillsborough, I think, was um, was quite an important sort of turning point in your life. Um, tell me about what happened when you originally arrived at the ground. When you'd ent- when you'd entered into into that end, um, what what happened? So, 
at that time, I'm, I'm, I'm 18, 19 years of age. We, we, we get there. I remember having a pint to Shandy, sitting on the wall facing the Leopards Lane end where we walked in. And um, everyone was saying, listen, it's, there's murder going on over there trying to get in. You'll have to get over. And we had tickets. But as we got to the turnstile, they decided to open the gates at the side of the turnstiles and just let everyone in. So, you know, I just, I remember it. I remember that day like it was yesterday as well. It's just, it's so vivid. I remember walking in and we went to go down the tunnel where everybody died. And my brother and his mate ended up grabbing us back and saying, no, don't go down there. People nearly got crushed in there last year. Because I don't know whether you know or some of the listeners will know. Is the year before, we actually played Notts Forest in the semi-final at the same ground. And it nearly happened then. So no one had learned any mistakes or from the mistakes back then. So we ended up going in the next pen. And witnessing it, we ended up pulling bodies out in the end, Jim, and it was horrendous. I remember going home and my mum sobbing at the end of the path, waiting for us. We didn't get home till about, I'd say, maybe eight o'clock at night. And it was just, and I was, I was numb. I was absolutely numb. And I think, and I can remember at the time, ecstasy was around and I was dabbling in it a bit anyway. And I remember just taking two ecstasy tablets and, and I think that was it then. I think, Till 1995, I was, I had ecstasy most weekends, do you know? I mean, when I look back at that period, you know, just watching it on telly as a you know, similar age to you, um, the impact that that had on the whole country at that time, but the impact that that had on Liverpool, in particularly around some of the bad press that was sort of, you know, misquoted and some of that stuff that created major problems, Um I could imagine being there on that particular day, the anxiety that that created for you as a 19-year-old kid. It must have been absolutely huge. And as I said, um, clearly the turning point in your life really at that time, wasn't it? We'll also bring into the fray that three years before, I was a hazel and a fear for my life, a hazel. I thought I was going to die. We had to actually knock a wall down to get to safety in hazel. That's the most scared I've ever been in my life prior to 2000, when we'll get to that after. But as a child, that was the most scared I'd ever been, a hazel. And then, obviously, three years later, Hillsborough happens, and I was at both. You know, so, what, 39 at one, and 96 souls lost at another at the tender age of 19 that's a lot of lot of people to see you know what was actually what was actually ironic about that game in Heisler as well was they actually played the game didn't they oh, it was they had to they had to jim yeah i i, I personally um as a 15 year old kid watching that i was a bit shocked that they did play it but you know there were reasons for it um so after hillsborough Paul, obviously, massive impact on the city of Liverpool, massive impact on people that you've clearly lost that you know. I take it that's the turning point, really, for you. You've talked about sort of, you know, then starting to get heavily involved in the drugs. Was that kind of the turning point when you sort of started to heavily get involved in the criminality and go down, you know, that path? Yeah, I think it's when I just abandoned all sort of risk and care and just went, yeah, I'm. I'm, this is this is what I'm doing. I'm choosing this as a career, and just ended up going down that road. Uh, yeah, that that's just what happened. And 
how how did you sort of give me some examples of the sort of stuff for me you know i'm not asking you to go into any great detail but what sort of stuff would you have got involved in at that age of the 19 year old i suppose you know like any sort of form of criminality if you get involved with people you sort of serve a bit of an apprenticeship don't you so do you sort of start at the bottom and then sort of build your way up and prove yourself is that the way it works yeah i think what has happened is because i was a good football player as a kid and a boxer and that I wouldn't, you know, I didn't suffer fools and, you know, I'd always look after myself, even though I'm only little, that I'd already had that reputation and, and people always like a good footy player in the area. So I'd already sort of saved me time from the age of six. My dad died when I was 15. So as soon as my dad died and the shackles were off, I had like a period of four years before that where all the lads got to know me and like me. And, you know, if there was ever a footy match going on, they'd get Paul in, you know, Paul will play and, you know, because I was a good player at the time. So that apprenticeship was already served. So it starts off by firstly mind and stuff. Then from mind and stuff, it was like, hang on, do you want to start selling stuff? Then once you start selling stuff on street corners, then you'll end up in pubs, then you'll end up in clubs, then you meet more people. And what happened in 1989, 90, Jim, is that ecstasy brought the city closer together because loads of parts of the city who wouldn't talk to each other decided to like, oh, you know, loved up on the ecstasy, you know, oh, you're all right, you, mate, you, you know, what area are you from? And then all of a sudden, all these little groups around the city started to come together. And that just created this, like, sort of uh, loads of sort of pathways of people who were going abroad or had people, you know, maybe in Nottingham or in Glasgow or in Dublin or in Belfast. So this spider's web of network just grew out from then. And obviously it starts with, then you start importing then and, and you go further afield. Once you've done what you've done locally, then you want to go abroad. And, you know, next port of goal is obviously Amsterdam. Is it is it a, gram, a glamorous lifestyle? You know, I, I'm an ex-police officer, you know, I've dealt with a lot of drug dealers in my time. But you never really get to know the full ins and outs of how it all works. You know, you you know bits, but is it a glamorous lifestyle? No, it's not. Because everyone thinks from the outside, everyone will just look at you and think, oh, millionaire, oh, he's got loads of money, oh, he's this, oh, he's that, oh, he'll have a great life. It's not like that at all. You know, one minute or one day you could go to bed and, with an absolute fortune, you could be a millionaire, but you could wake up skint because of something what's gone on overnight. You don't know what's round the corner. You you know, anything could happen, but not is it going to happen to you. It will happen to the people around you and then their families and their families' families. And so it's not glamorous at all. You might think it is. It's more, how can I it, it It's risky and it's like, it's something that if you're into it, you begin to maybe love it. Maybe that's not the right word to use, but, you know, it becomes a job. It's like you being a police officer. to be certain times when you'd love it and you think, right, this is why I do this job. And it's, just, it's the same when, when you become a drug dealer or a drug smuggler. It's the same type of buzz, but it's only temporary. I think you've talked before in terms of, you know, when you look at the higher levels of drug dealing, when you go right up to the top of the chain, I think you've you've said yourself that they run like international companies, aren't you? I think you're actually on record of saying that 
you know, some of these guys that you've worked with, you know, could could run a country, you know, run multinational sort of organisations because they're so clever at what they do. Um, but I can imagine, Paul, one question that's always interested me was, and, and I think I probably sort of see this from kind of like, you know, my interest in kind of the mafia links as well, is that is the trust really there? Because from an outsider looking in, it looks like it is, but actually, is the trust really there when you're working with these kind of individuals? It has to be at certain points. It really does have to be because, you know, what you're putting on the line, there has to be a sense of trust. But then what you've got rubbing right up to trust is greed. And when trust rubs up to greed, it creates something that doesn't exist, I don't think, in any other business. Yeah, I think when you're talking, no doubt, the kind of money that you were kind of involved in, you know, it does create people then yearn for more and more. And I think one example that I wanted to highlight was that you've you've previously talked about there was a time when you um, went to a particular location with people that you obviously were, you know, associates with and felt that they were on your side. Um, I think it was a barn. What what actually happened on that particular occasion? They- well, you don't know what's around the corner, basically. You know, you could end up going to a place where you think you're going to be earning some money. Then before you know it, you've been kidnapped. You're fighting for your life, your trust. You're beaten to within a pulp of your life. You know, it's not a glamorous life as to go back to what you spoke about before when you're lying on the floor, spluttered in blood, stinking a petal, and, and, and people are saying, burn them. That's not, that's not glamorous. That's No, and I think that's the point I'm trying to get at really, Paul, with this, because I'm hoping that we will attract some younger listeners. And I think what I'm trying to sort of get out of you today really is just – the last thing I want to do is to glamorize what you've done because I think what you're doing now as an individual, and we'll come on to that a bit a little bit later in the conversation, is you know absolutely amazing. And I just want to sort of get that message across that you know we're not we're not trying to glamorize drug dealing here. Um, that's certainly what we're not about. Um, so you got out of that, Paul, and then obviously turn of kind of fate in some ways. In so I think it was two thousand. And six, you've then obviously gone over to Amsterdam with uh, with a business contact, I believe, to watch a Champions League Champions League game. Um, can you tell us what happened then when when, when you were over there? Um, I believe there was a complete turnaround in your life at that time. Yeah, I, well, we'd been out the night before. It was a Tuesday night. I think we were playing on a Wednesday, so it was a Tuesday night. We'd been out. We'd had a few beers around Amsterdam, as you do. We'd had a giggle. We'd had something to eat. Uh, then we'd gone back to the hotel, must have been about 11 o'clock, I fell asleep. We were going to get up at 8 o'clock the next morning and we were getting the train to Eindhoven. Uh, it's Liverpool were playing in the Champions League uh, group stages. And uh, my phone went about 6 o'clock and I remember looking at it and it was my neighbour. And uh, as I picked it up, I had all police sirens in the back. And he went, Paul, he said, I think I think the police are at your house. I said, how do you know it's my house? He said, because your door's 12 foot from where it should be. And I went, okay. And, and, I, and I remember just putting the phone on the floor and jumping all over it. 
no, that was my private phone, and he obviously had another phone because you'd have a burner phone in them days. Uh, and I remember ringing a couple of the lads to see what was going on, and I rang three numbers, and the police answered every one of the phones and knew it was me, obviously. And that's when I just... It was like a big sinkhole opened up in front of me and, and, and everything washed away down it. It wasn't a good moment. I take it, leading up to that, you'd probably sense there was something going on. You know, I, I would think with these kind of um, operations, there were signs there that, you know, potentially they were they were looking at you and looking at the gang or the group that you were dealing with. Yeah, you, there's a couple of sayings. One is you see ghosts. So when you're saying, I've, I've just saw something there, and everyone's going, no, you've seen a ghost. It's just a ghost. You go, no, 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 no. I've seen something here. And then it just, you know, you just get a sense of it. And then all of a sudden, I remember a close family relative got investigated by the tax. And I just thought, no, this is it. This, this is it. Uh, and I remember speaking to everyone. They were all like, no, no, no. And lo and behold, everyone's door goes in. Yeah. And uh, I suppose at that point, luckily for you, you're, I say luckily for you, it can't be a nice experience because am I right in saying you didn't, uh, you didn't exactly have an awful lot of uh, possessions on you or cash or access to transport or anything like that. So you were kind of sort of left completely out, out on your own really, weren't you? Well, I had 350 euro. I had uh, a rucksack with a, with a bear ghost coat in it, a pair of shorts and a pair of flip-flops and some toiletries. That's it. That's all I had. So tell me, you're in that situation. You know, obviously, you've got your family at home. Big news, I presume, in Liverpool. No doubt it made the press. Um, what, what What's it like being on the run? You know, you're in Amsterdam. What What's the next move for you? What, how, how does it all work? It was just hard. It was, it was self-preservation and what can I do and trying to make some decisions, but... My head was too all over the place to make any decisions, so it was a case of just give it a few weeks and see what I can find out, what information I can get. And it was just always bad news, and the bad news just got worse. And then it got terrifying, and then it was a case of, am I going to go home and face this or do a, do a run? And I decided to run. And what's that sort of... Um, again, I, I think what I'm trying to do here, Paul, is to sort of not glamorise it. And I think sort of from talking to you sort of before we've done this interview in the past and obviously reading bits of your book, um, it's it's not a glamorous um, lifestyle being on the run like that, is it? I mean, I, I would say presumably you get looked after initially, but does there come a point when I think in your own words you need to graft to sort of pay your way? Yeah. It, obviously, people will only do so much for you as people do for whoever. And then it's a case of you've got to get out and sort yourself out. So, you know, it's it's a case of then getting back out there and trying to do what you've done to earn some money. But then it just, it's like, it gets worse because you've been elevated up to another position in the whole, you know, scheme of things. So you go from this lad who's been smuggling drugs then to being part of this international drug gang who, you you know, you're mixing with, South Americans, South Africans, Americans, Eastern Europeans. 
and the reputations that they have, they're not good. I was going to say, when you're sort of dealing with your network back in Liverpool, I would suggest that we've talked about it already around the trust, but I would have thought that, you know, being on the run, being on your own, dealing with those kind of individuals, that must have, must have been a very risky time for you. How, how sort of were you feeling when you were dealing with those kind of people? You just get on with it and you just have to get on with it. It's just because I'd been doing it for that long, it was just like second nature. I was always trying to pull out of it. But the only way I was going to pull out of it is if I went and, you know, faced up to the music. But, you know, right then I wasn't ready. What was, the tur- what was the turning point for you? What was the turning point when you sort of had that light bulb moment and sort of thought, you know what, Paul Wormsley has got to do the right thing here and get this over and done with. I can't just keep living like this. What what was what was that sort of light bulb moment for you, Paul? It wasn't one. It was about five. Okay. Uh, it started off with my kids uh, and some of the things they said to me, which I don't really want to repeat. Uh, and then people around me, and I just thought, you know what? If I don't do this now, I'm either going to be dead or it will be a lifetime in jail. So I had to make a decision, and I did. And I remember everyone trying to talk me out of it. I made the decision in 2010. I said, I had enough. I'm going home. And everyone's like, no, no, no. Don't go home. Don't. No, 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 no. I'm going to go home and face the music. You know, I can't be bothered. I'd rather try and do it on my terms than wake up one morning with a dot on my face and a gun pointed at me. Yeah, I know you obviously sort of had a couple of uh, hair-raising moments in in while you were while you sort of dotted all over sort of Europe. Um, you obviously finally handed yourself in in two thousand eleven, um, and I believe you served. Was it you were originally given a ten year sentence and you served about five years? Yeah. Um, what was what was that like? And because I know you got moved around from prison to prison, how how did you how did you find that sort of period of time in your life? Wow, uh, it was scary uh, because I didn't know what to expect, uh, and it was also uh, so sort of fresh to me in terms of hang on, if I can make a clean break here, then that that's me done. But don't forget, you're talking about putting someone with 1,400 criminals when you're trying to get away from them. And I don't mean trying to run away from them, I just mean not be one of them. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're all around you. It's a tough ask. Uh, So, yeah, it was, for me, it was most probably one of the best things that could have happened to me at that time. I was allowed to go and sit and contemplate without no phone, without no family, uh, to, to just read, get myself fit, get myself educated in a way. Although austerity had gone right across the prison estates and the prison system, and Michael Gove called it the Spartan approach. So there wasn't much you could actually do up until a level two, which is like GCSE level. But I, I always thought I was, I was maybe a bit higher than that, which proved to be the case in the end. So for me, it was just, a moment of uh, sort of long, long, long heads wobbling and getting it together and thinking, you know what, 
have a little go here. And so I did, and I, I, I read as much as I could. I done as many courses as I could. I got my family to send money in, my friends to send money in, so I could go on other courses. Just got myself educated, I think. I ended up doing 74 qualifications while I was uh, in custody. I just loved learning. I loved reading. And obviously, I'd written the book as well while I was away. So, Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, I've read the book, and it's absolutely fantastic read. I, I, it's one of those books that you pick up and you just don't put down until it's done. Um, absolutely brilliant read, Paul. What was, the, what was the kind of motivation for that? Where did that come from? I mean, clearly, you've got a great story to tell, but where, when, where did that sort of that idea come from? Um, did someone else give you the idea or was it just something that just popped into your head one day? So it was it's a culmination of things, but there was one major point and it happened within a week. And I just had news that my mum had been diagnosed with cancer and Alzheimer's. And uh, also my sister, uh, God rest her soul, passed away. My, my little sister, which under weird circumstances and uh, I'd just been informed that the girl who I was with was going to marry someone else so that was like a big week for me and I remember going back and thinking you know I always knew that or I always thought like a self-fulfilling prophecy that when I was going to go to jail that someone around me would pass pass away and that would just be it and I thought it was going to be my mum, and I thought I'm going to have to write a letter to my mum here. So I started writing this letter to explain and say sorry. And six months later, I was still writing this letter. I had a lot to say sorry for, you know. And it turned out to be the book in the end. So some of the other writing, I was uh, entered in poetry competitions and short story competitions, and I started to win competitions. And there was a guy, his name was Andy Croft, who was a published author who come in and used to mentor me for a year. And um, but I said, Don't just mentor me, let's get a group together, let's get loads of lads who are creative, who are writers, let's let's get everyone together. And we did, so it wasn't it was never about me, you know, it's always about we and it's always about us for me. Uh, but that book was, you know, was the catalyst and also was born out of having that horrendous week and me thinking I, you know, and I, I need to tell my mum, and it was a letter to my mum, which turned out to be a book. Absolutely life changing for you, really, if you think about it. You know that that book has, in some ways, saved your life. And I think when you look at now the work that you do with young people, you know it's just incredible. I mean, tell me about that, Paul. You know, we've we've kind of moved away from prison now, and we're sort of you know we're getting our life back on track. Um what sort of work have you done um, with young people and what sort of results have you been getting with, with, with young people? So I, I'd like to just go back a little bit first, Jim, before I get to that and tell you how this happened. Cause I always find it a bit cliche that you've got this, you know, this ex criminal who's now who's working with kids and he's trying to reform them and he's trying to do this and he's trying to do that. It never happened that way at all. I, I was given a placement while in custody as part of my reparation back in the community to work in a community centre in Bootle in North Liverpool. And based in that community centre was the Jamie Carragher Sports and Learning Academy. And I was there to brush, mop, clean the floors. The tutor never turns up one day and I'm just there 
and the, the other a teaching assistant said, can you come in the room? Now, it was all safeguarded. There was enough people. It's all cameras up. And he said, yeah, go on. We'll allow you to go in the room and sit there. So he asked me a question and I just answered the question. And he texted me. He said, do you want to do you want to get up and say a few words anyway? An hour later, I took the whole class on communications and how to communicate. But I'd done it in a Yorkshire accent, just having a giggle. And, t- and the kids love me. And I just thought, oh, this is okay. So then they got me in the office at the end of the week. They said, look, do you want to come and work for us? We'll sort it out with the jail. And I went, can we do this? Is this is this allowed? And he went, yeah, come on. We'll we'll make this happen if you want this to happen. So then I went and uh, I went and paid myself to to become a tutor, done a distant learning course while I was still in custody. And uh, six months, well, sorry, nine months later, I was a pastoral care lead at the whole centre. I had like 45 young people in, in, in my cohort and I, and I loved it. And then I, I was marking a, you know, the B-Tech level three, which is like an A-level, but I sort of specialised in sports psychology. And I was realising that I didn't want to uh, judge these boys and these girls on academic value and people learn at different rates and different times. And I was just spotting loads of things and I'd never thought I'd be in this sort of field and I just love communicating with the kids and love saying well no I'm gonna have you tried this and you do that because of that and have you thought about that and we just have these weirdly debates and sometimes the lesson would just go off on a tangent but the kids stayed they loved it and I loved them and that's how it happened so me working with young people all happened as a fluke and then when I finished jail I was offered a job there and I realised after six months that I I didn't want to, as I said before, evaluate and judge these kids on an academic value because they're worth much more than that. And I got offered a job in a preschool to do some work there. Uh, it was only a couple of days a week. I'm still there now. Uh, I work with about six different preschools across the city. I've worked with mainstream schools as well. And I just get called in to certain schools. I feel like the equaliser for for kids in Liverpool. I really love that point that you just made, Paul, because I, I thought this for a long time. There, there's kids out there that just, they're not brilliant at sort of the normal sort of school routine, are they? They're not good at sort of the maths and the English. But have you found in your sort of experience that a lot of these kids are incredibly intelligent and they've got such a lot to offer? They're just brilliant. I remember taking uh, all of this uh, young people from the Prue School to uh, Edgel University and the lecture. They didn't know that they were the lecture was it was them conducting the, the the lecture, and it was just unreal. And I remember one of them said, "School's not for everybody, is it, Miss?" And I and it's not. It's just not. There's a there's a time and a place for everything, and it's that. I, I harp on about this saying, and it's the same thing. Loads of these young people, especially in the proof school, they're broken, but they have to be at the right stage of broken to be fixed. So you're not going to be able to fix them when they're 13, 14, 15, 16. You have to hope and pray that some of them get a good partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it may be, and then they can go off on that tangent. Or they get a good group of lads with them who are not like your normal lads who are not going to be getting into loads of trouble or they just develop later on and, and they become more mature uh, and, and and more sort of sensible and more uh, sort of willing to change and to get the, 
the job that's going to take a little bit of time in terms of start off on a crappy wage. But yeah, you know, let's look at it when you're 21. Let's work this out. So that's what I used to do in the preschools. I'd go in and I'd go, no, look, let's play the long game. Let's play. Let's do the math of the drug dealer in the street who's going to have a two-year run but ends up going to jail or a kid who starts off on a course and gets to 18 and then is on a good wage and then look at them when they're 30, look at them when they're 40 and look at them when they're retiring at 50 because they add it together and they add uh, the astuteness to, to stick at something because that's one of the things as well. It's about sticking at things. So that's sort of the... The, the way I go with these young people. Yeah, because I can imagine you know, the attraction to young kids these days when they see the drug dealing going on on the streets. It's kind of, it's like what you just said there. It's like early, um, it, I'm not saying that, you know, it's it's not graft because, you know, there are the risks involved in drug dealing, but it's like very easy sort of um, gratification, isn't it? Straight away, they're earning good money. They're not serving a real apprenticeship. They're kind of, you know, they're, they're grafting quite early on and they're earning, you know, in a short period of time, vast amount of money. But the risks and the harm potential that they could come to, what you've just described there in terms of getting sort of, um, you know, a career and, and moving up the ranks, that's got to be the best way forward, hasn't it, from your experience? Well, the reason why most of these young people are doing what they do now is to just sustain their habits. Most of them are their own best punters. They're only selling weed because they smoke weed and they're giving away weed. So it's for significance within the group. That's why they do what they do. When I I, I call it the karaoke test. One of the first things I ask these young people when I meet them is, would you get up and single karaoke? If they go, no, I go, I'm working with you. Because the two afraid of what people will think about them. But the one who goes, no, I'll front that. I go, right, yeah, right, you're done. You're already done. We haven't got a problem with you. And that's the way it is. It's all like we're too cool for school, you know, and we're going to do this and no, no, here's what goes on and, and all this grass and culture or, or lack of the grass and culture in, in terms of, no, no, we ate all the coppers and we ate this and we ate that. And, no, I'm going, let's just, let's sit down. Let's educate you on this. Let's educate you on, you know, like, for instance, a, a young person to get to the age of 16 costs roughly £250,000 to get to that point. So then if you break it down in front of them and say, well, no, it comes from the taxes. Who pays the taxes? Where do the other taxes go? Who pays for the lighting in the road? Who pays for the bins? Who pays for the school? Who pays for the courses? Who pays for the clothes? You know, and there are always loads of these young people say things to me like oh well my mum gets it from the state you know the, she gets dolls she gets this it's pip it's that i said no but it comes from somewhere it's generated from hmrc and let's let's sort of explore that we even got two years ago two people and i think hmrc won an award for it for uh we got them out of the preschool and put them in hmrc and we've got that now with loads of companies we've developed links with so many different businesses and so many different people. Uh, and I would say that maybe one of my best skills back when I was a drug dealer was networking and networking myself over to South America. But now all I've done is I've turned that on a dead. And now I network businesses for their corporate responsibility. 
and say, look, now we've got these young people. We've just opened uh, a civil engineer academy uh, for a project called Weapons Down, Gloves Up. And we've got 200 apprenticeships and jobs for young people in civil engineering. They're ready to go now. COVID stuck at a bad time, but it gives us time to get ready. We're not bothered about the qualifications that these young people have as a, as, as, as a, in school. Bring them to us with none, but they can think on the feet. And when you were talking before in terms of loads of these young people have got a lot to offer, I remember having a little discussion with one young kid and I asked him, was it a, a plane, a vehicle? And he went, no, it's a vehicle. I said, it's not. I said, it's a vehicle. I said, okay. I said, you know, I said, would would you say a bike's a vehicle? And he went, no. He said, you're not going to go go into a bike shop and say, excuse me, mate, can I have a look at that vehicle behind you? And he was right. You know, you wouldn't say that. So he's reframing stuff. And in the end, I said, you need to go and work in a solicitor's firm because if you're going to argue that point, you'd argue the point for somebody else. Because it's a petty point to argue, but it's a good point to argue. I think what you're giving me here, Paul, is um, I, I'm very much like you. I, I've I've worked with a number of young people. Um, you picked up on a point there, really, about you know the way young people will make sweeping statements about the police. You know, and I was always very, very keen to re-educate when I was in the police. You know, I worked with a number of young people, and I'd like to think that you know I've got a few young people back on track. But listening to your story, it just gives me real hope that, you know, like-minded people like us can sort of work with young people and, you know, get them back on the straight and the straight and narrow and not down a life of crime that obviously, you know, you and many people tend to go down. Um, any other ideas really from your your perspective around how we can how we can kind of, you know, keep changing things for the better? Yeah, well, with the same method and the same drive and desire, not only do you then want to educate these young people or give them some advice and give them your pearls of wisdom, uh, is also do exactly the same to the, the organisations that are looking after them, the schools, the social services, the social service teams, you know, the police, in essence, the local councils, the parents, some of the parents need educating about what it is and what it's like and not to get into some of these discussions. It's There's no manual for being a parent, you know, and, and that's why they say grandparents are better than parents because you learn and you know what it's like. So it's not just about teaching the young kids. I call it the trinity. It's about finding where they are when they're not in school. you got them in school and finding the, the friends. So it's them, the friends in school. I if You know, you, you judge the person by the five people who the best mates with. I, I totally agree with that. And when I was doing a lot of intervention work with young people, what we used to do was we'd involve the family because you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the skills weren't there. And what we were trying to do is, you know, signpost those sort of parents, you know, whoever was looking after the kids to sort of get some help and support. And what we did was we built up that rapport with those kids and with the family uh, and with the siblings and we got some really good results, you know, and it was really interesting to see that we didn't take any of those kids down to, you know, enforcement because they were doing really well. And again, what you said, a lot of those kids were going on to do good things vocationally, but they weren't academically sound. So I just think hearing this from you in and, and, and looking at the work that I've done, it just shows that it can work. But I am a big believer, and I'll be interested to see what you think about, 
you know, I do think early, early intervention is also something that we need to look at as well moving forward. Yeah, it's it's absolutely essential. And I remember talking to the, uh, the one of the chief superintendents years ago because I was I done an intervention and I got some results and it must have got back to them and they called me and said, "Listen, well, what's going on here?" And I went, "Look, you're gonna have to go and speak to the family. This is, you know, it, it it's not my call." And I remember him. Uh, I remember him saying, "Paul, go and educate the six year olds." Because it's them that need it. Leave, leave the others. The two, the, the, the too far gone. But I can't leave them. I just can't no. leave them because some some people just need to know that they've got somebody. You know, when they're ready, there's my phone number. Here's our website. You get on us. We will never leave you. One, once you're ready to do the right thing, we're here for you. You know, and even if you do the wrong thing and you want some support, get in touch. So we, our door is always open. So I'm right in saying that you you work a policy where you would say, I don't write anybody off. Would that be would that be a fair comment? No, we don't. And, and why would you write anybody off? Well, there's so many people being written off in life, and it's just like wow. I mean, you can just go back to look at so many, you know, like a listers. Look at look at Mark Wahlberg, for, for instance. You know his story is amazing. You know he was he was looking at a, a, a class A like felon when he was sixteen years of age, and now he's one of the biggest actors in the world. He's got it together. You have to find the right person, the right person who you listen to. And there's a couple of sayings, and and one is the thing is about common sense is it's not that common, but it's so why would we why would we talk to young people and talk to them like young people, but expect them to act like adults when we know that their brain is informed to deal with certain things. Not only that, the, the likes of the people who we're talking about here are the ones who've been excluded from school, who have been using cannabis most probably for the last three or four years before that, whose minds is just not working right anyway. You know, do you need educating on, on this huge, you know, weed problem, which is endemic? And we'll become an epidemic soon. Uh, we need to sort that out because all the cases that I deal with now, threaded through it, a cannabis misuse. All these county lines, it's cannabis misuse. We'll start it all off. There's not many people who are getting arrested by the police today at a young age who are not uh, in in the midst of, of all of that, whether it's them growing or their friends are growing some or they're selling it or they're smoking it, you know, we need to make that uncool instead of it being cool. Absolutely. I mean, I look at sort of cannabis, the strength of cannabis when I first joined the police in 1995, you know, and then I, I did a lot of work in the drugs field and you looked at the quality of the cannabis, you know, prior to me leaving in 2016 no comparison you know that stuff is is, is lethal um and I, I could not agree with you more paul a lot lot more work needs to be done on uh, on it but you know what I, I i'm a strong believer and it's just been so refreshing to listen to you today because it just gives me real hope that we can change things and i just wanted to sort of just come back to a mate of yours andy grant I was I was listening to him talking to you a few a few months back, and Andy was talking about uh, for people that don't know Andy, Andy's a, an Afghan war veteran who uh, was blown up um, when he was on on active service, 
um, and uh, he lost one of his legs. And when he when he first came round, he was basically told that I think he'd never run again, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah. He'd, he'd never have a he'd never be a marine again, and he'd never have a baby. And actually, Andy's achieved all of those three objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's ten years later. So that gives me real hope that we should never write young people off, like you've said, and we should always, you know, keep a real open mind that we can change things for the better in the 21st century as we move forward. Um, Paul, is there any question that I haven't asked you that you wanted me to ask you? No, I'll just, there's one point there though, and, and we always say it, and we always mention it's the little quote and statement is where we say, write them off. Let's start writing them in. Couldn't agree with you more, mate. Do you I know? Think I totally, totally agree. I, I, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Paul. You know, 20 years as a police officer, probably in the early part of my career, you know, I probably was a little bit sort of, you know, lock them up, throw away the key. But I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, over the last you know few years, I'm absolutely with you 100%. They're human beings. When you dig into the background of a lot of these kids, there's a story to tell. You know, there's trauma, there's anxiety, there's all sorts of things. And you're absolutely right. And I think that's a great message that we can get out today before we end this podcast. You know, let's count kids in. Let's do as much as we can for them. And and hopefully me and you can continue to work together over the next few years and we can sort of, you know, go on this journey together and bring as many people in as we can to try and uh, to try and do this and, and make it a reality. Listen, let's just keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep writing them in and let's not give up on nobody. Never mind the kids, the families, the parents, the aunties, the uncles, the establishments, everyone. We all need to get on the same page. You know, I I, I work by the quote, if, you know, if I've changed, anyone can change, but you have to be willing to change and then other people will change around you. Yeah, that's absolutely so true. Paul, how can people uh, get hold of your book? It's on Amazon. So uh, it's just some on eBay as well. Some someone's selling them on eBay, but the main the, the main thing is the, the deals with Amazon. So that's where they are. Uh, it's called Just an Ordinary Decent Criminal. I apologise about the price, but the reason why it's like that is because uh, I've I've made it so it's uh, workable for the university students because it's on all the university reading lists for the social sciences. So I apologise for for those who are going to spend twenty quid. On a book, it is he- a hefty book, though. Uh, I wouldn't like to be it with it. It's a brilliant read, Paul. Uh, Cheers, I know, I, know, I know you can download it as well because I've got it on my Kindle. It's an absolutely brilliant read uh, for all our listeners. So please, you know, give it give it a go. You'll absolutely love it. Um, great, great piece of writing by Paul. Paul, how can people reach you? Uh, so there's two ways. I am uh, the co-founder of the Lewis Dunn Foundation. Uh, that's based in Liverpool. We, Lewis was a, a, a young 16-year-old who was murdered on the canal for just being in the right place at the right time but wearing the wrong clothes and the wrong people were there and they ended up uh, murdering them. And, and so in his name, we go out and do cold face interventions with young people and organisations. So there's people can get in touch with me through that. Or I have a, a county lines uh, website as well. And if you just if, if you Google that, then... Uh, that's all there. Okay, mate. What's the uh, what's the web what's the website address for that? The website address for that is county-lines.co.uk. 
Brilliant. That's great, Paul. Paul, it's been an absolutely fantastic, uh, you know, hour with you today. I've absolutely, you know, it's been brilliant. I can't thank you enough, you know, and uh, you really do give me hope that we can change things for the better in the 21st century. Um, guys, uh, thank you for listening to the Community Safety Podcast today. I really appreciate you all sort of taking the time out to listen. Please, you know, like, rate, and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible. We want to change communities for the better in the 21st century. Thank you so much for listening and look out for the next episode of the Community Safety Podcast. Thank you very much. Wow, that was an absolutely fantastic interview with Paul Wormsley. I think what Paul has shown today was just real genuineness about his early life, his his criminal career. And I think it really came across today that it's not a glamorous lifestyle being a drug dealer. Um, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of risk. And I think it comes across very much in Paul's interview that actually he's a much happier person today than he was when he was probably earning millions of pounds um, as a drug dealer. So it's just really, really refreshing to see the work that he's doing, the book that he's written. You know, he's making some real inroads into um, young people within Merseyside. And I'm sure that he'll start to reach out much wider to uh, younger people around the country as well. So that's what this podcast is all about you know it's about listening to people like Paul and just making a difference if we make a difference to one life then we're doing our job please like rate and subscribe to the community safety podcast we really want to get our mission across to as many people as possible please don't just listen to this podcast we really genuinely want you to be involved spread the word tell friends let's all have a listen and let's all help change communities for the better in the 21st century you can also reach the Community Safety Podcast on our website, which is www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We really do appreciate your support. And just a final mention to our sponsors, St. Ives Chambers Birmingham, RHE Global, and Me Learning. Without your help and support, this podcast just wouldn't have become a reality so I can't thank you all enough for your ongoing support with this project you've been listening to the community safety podcast with thanks for support from St Ives Chambers RHE Global and Me Learning join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century and the community safety podcast with Jim Nixon, Jim Nixon.